John, uh, uh, John 18 begins uh, the, the last division of, uh, of John's letter. I'll remind you that John wrote this about 90 to 94, maybe even as late as 95 A.D. Uh, Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead in about 33 A.D., so it's about 60 years after uh, that event took place that John wrote both the, the, uh, the gospel that bears his name, probably the epistles that are around the same time, that uh, first, second, and third John, and, uh, and the book of Revelation. It was written uh, in, in early to mid-90s uh, A.D. And uh, as a result, John is uh, impressed by the Holy Spirit to, uh, to give us some information about Jesus' ministry that, uh, uh, that comes from a different angle, takes a different perspective than the other three Gospels which had all been written at that time, and everybody was familiar with them. John's certainly familiar with them. He knows the people that are reading the uh, the gospel that bears his name have read the others as well. So he covers uh, a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. Gives us information that uh, that others do not. Um, ignores certain things that the other gospel writers all make mention of. And uh, so from that uh, uh, from that perspective, if no other, it's very unique, uh, a very unique book. The uh, the first chapter of John is uh, is the introductory, um, uh, as far as the construction is concerned, is kind of the introduction to the book. Chapters two through twelve are uh, John's, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus, John's account of Jesus' ministry to the world. Chapters thirteen through seventeen is Jesus' ministry to his disciples uh, privately, and then chapter eighteen through twenty one has to do with the things pertaining to his death and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and so forth. So uh, beginning in chapter eighteen. Uh, is this last division following Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Uh, I'm going to take this a little different, um, uh, in a little different format tonight. I'm going to read a section and then we'll back up and talk about it. And then I'll read another section and back up and talk about that. So we'll read down through uh, verse 1 through about verse 11, the end of verse 11. And then we'll start, start making our comments. When Jesus had spoken these words, talking about his prayer in chapter 17, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where there was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come unto him, went forth and said unto unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Now notice that I am he. Uh, it's going to be mentioned three times here in the next few verses. Each time the word he is in italics. That always means the translators added it. There's no Greek word for he in, uh, that's used here. There's a Greek word for he, but it's not, uh, it's not in the original text. So when Jesus, uh, when this is speaking, in each case, it said, Jesus said unto them, I am. He identifies himself as the I am that I am that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Jesus said unto them, I am, and Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled with which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and cut the high priest's servant uh, and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword under the sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? The next thing it says, then the band and the captain and the officers took Jesus and bound him. And then they went to uh, went on their way to the high priest. Now, notice the difference in uh, in John's account of the Garden of Gethsemane experience and the other gospel writers. It's interesting to me that with all the things that are spoken of and all the details that are given to us in, uh, in the other gospel accounts, like when Jesus got to the Garden of Gethsemane, he took Peter, James, and John and went with him privately into the, left the others on the outside of the garden, took Peter, James, and John with him deeper into the garden to pray, told them, watch with me, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He falls down and prays, uh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Sweats great drops of blood. An angel comes to strengthen him, and then Judas and the the, uh, Roman soldiers show up. John didn't say anything about that. Now, it's not because he wasn't there. He was the one that was in the group. 
He was in the inner circle. He was the one that was taken into the midst of them, into the midst of the garden. He probably was one of the ones that fell asleep too. You wouldn't expect him to give us that bit of information. But uh, nevertheless, he was there as close as you could be to everything that was going on. And he doesn't say one word about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's what I want you to understand. John's account is different from any of the other three Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of Jesus at this point in time because John is looking back some 60 years later. John is looking back as he's inspired and impressed by the Holy Ghost to recognize Jesus and look at him from the perspective of the dignity of the Son of God or the God-man. The other three uh, gospel writers show us what happened to Jesus and how he was struggling in his flesh as a man about to become the sacrifice. Not so with John. John's focus is on Jesus and his dignity as the king of kings. Now, it's also interesting to me that with the church world at large, the church has placed such an emphasis on Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. John places the emphasis on the prayer that Jesus prayed before he ever went to the garden in chapter 17. John's emphasis, as he's prompted by the Holy Ghost, is to emphasize the things that Jesus said about being one with him. Not, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Where would the church be if the church focused more in being united with Jesus in or united with God through Jesus rather than, Lord, if it be your will in prayer? We'd have had to figure out how to pray if we couldn't pray, Lord, if it be your will. Which means our odds of greater success in prayer were assured. John doesn't look at it from that perspective. Notice it starts off in verse 1. It says he went over the brook uh, Cedron. That's Greek for the word, the Hebrew word Kidron. You've heard of the Kidron Valley. That's what separated Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Uh, the word Cedron the, in the, or I'm sorry, the, the Hebrew word for Kidron, which is, this is the Greek equivalent, means dark waters. When Jesus passed over the dark waters, well, these were dark waters for him, weren't they? He entered into the garden. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew of the place, for Jesus oft time resorted there with his disciples. Uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 37 says in the last week of Jesus' uh, life, when he was there in Jerusalem, before he was taken captive, before the Last Supper and before he was taken captive, he was daily in the temple and nightly he was in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the Mount of Olives, Luke says. But it's, uh, that's, uh, that's what he's talking about. So Judas knew exactly where he was going to be. He's followed this pattern all week long. Then Judas, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Um, turn with me back to Luke chapter 22. I want you to see something here. This word band literally means, uh, it's a Greek word that means a tenth of a legion. Well, a tenth of a legion would be somewhere between four and five hundred soldiers. Now, not all Bible scholars agree that this was the case. I mean, it's, it, if you've ever been to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'd wonder how could 500 people get in there? Um, it'd be difficult. It'd be very difficult, assuming things are the same size now as they were back then, and, and who knows? We don't know if it, that was the case or not. It may have been a much bigger place at the time. But in Luke's, uh, Luke's Gospel, it says in uh, chapter 22, in verse... Uh, well, look at verse 47. It says, And while he yet spake, behold, there was a multitude. This is Jesus praying the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he yet spake, behold, there was a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? And so on and so forth. It talks about Peter cutting off the right ear of uh, Malchus. And uh, then notice in verse 52, uh, Jesus tells us about how he healed the man's ear in verse 51. Or I'm sorry, in verse, yeah, verse 51, uh, Jesus touched his ear and healed him. Now notice verse 52. This is Jesus talking to the crowds, this multitude. It said, then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. So Luke gives us a, some information about this that John just kind of overlooks and, and just says there was a, a, a band. But Luke gives us some information that this was not just Roman soldiers. This was Jews and Gentiles together. There, there were some of the, uh, the captains of the temple. Those could have been officers, but they were certainly part of the Pharisees. They had their own security force, so to speak. But then it says that Jesus spoke to the chief priests there as well. So it's, uh, it's certainly some of the, uh, uh, I hate to use this term, but, but I don't know what else to call them, lesser priests. The high priest must not have been there. 
because he would have been identified. It would have been improper not for him to be identified if Jesus is talking to him and he's present. But it does say some of the chief priests were there. So we're talking about a big group of people. We don't know if it was exactly that, but the Greek word for band is, as I said, one-tenth of a legion. That's what it means. So that would be between 400 and 500 people. So it says, um, Judas, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come unto him, went forth. Now, I want you to notice the difference in the pictures that John paints. We just saw in Luke chapter 22 that Jesus is praying and then the multitude comes. That's not the picture that John paints. Now, whether this is just a matter of the Holy Ghost wanting to see Jesus in a certain way uh, as portrayed by John, or if it's a, if it's a matter of uh, uh, him giving us some details that, that, that Luke didn't give us, I don't really know. I don't think it creates a discrepancy one way or the other. Some don't agree. Some see a lot of discrepancies in the other three Gospels in John's account. But here where it says Jesus went forth, it's telling us that Jesus met them out, uh, outside the, the garden. He didn't wait for them to come to get him. In other words, it's showing us his willingness and his readiness to be offered as a sacrifice. Now, when it says he went forth, what did he do? Well, if the other gospel writers' accounts are accurate, then that means he woke up the three guys, Peter, James, and John, that had fallen asleep several times. He got the other eight that he left on the outside of the garden, and then he goes forth to meet the multitude that's there. Now, notice something interesting about this. They've got lanterns, they've got torches, they've got, it's dark and there's not electricity or anything like that. Nobody's got a spotlight, the, the park's not lit up or anything like that. And so they're using uh, artificial light to see and you would expect that they have been this, in this situation numerous times so they would know how much light to bring them. But notice it says, Jesus went forth and said unto them, whom seek you? They don't answer, we're looking for you. Why? There's nobody in this crowd that doesn't know who Jesus is. By the time Jesus gets to Pilate, Pilate knows who he is. He's not a mystery to anybody. The Bible tells us in, um, uh, I think it's Luke's account, that tells us that after he got to Pilate, Pilate sent him to Herod. And Herod was really excited to see him. Herod was uh, a governor that went back and forth from town to town and that type of thing. But he was in Jerusalem at the time. Pilate found out and said, oh, man, he's a Jew. I'll send him to Herod. Let Herod deal with him. Herod was really excited because he had heard about Jesus, heard about his miracles, heard about all the things that he had done, and he wanted to, to see a miracle for himself. Well, why wouldn't we expect everybody else who lives in Jerusalem to have at least that much information? But Jesus said, whom seek ye? They're looking right at him, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The Holy Ghost gave Jesus an out. And he always, there's always going to be an opportunity for you to pass on obeying God's will for your life, no matter how sure you are of what that will is. They didn't recognize him. There's nobody there that looks at him and says, well, you're the guy we're after. They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And everybody falls backwards. And notice it says that Judas stood with them. Verse 5, then they answered Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said unto them, I am. And Jesus also, which betrayed him, stood with him. Judas falls with the rest of the crowd. Then Jesus, I love Jesus' next, this next statement. Then it says, then he asked him again, verse 7. Then he asked him again. Okay, they're just picking themselves up off their backs. And he says, you want to try again? Now who are you looking for? And notice how they respond. They don't respond, oh, you're the miracle worker. We're looking for you. They answer again, Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody is willing to acknowledge the power that was just displayed because they have one and only one purpose, and that is, remember in John chapter 11, verse 49, Caiaphas has already judged Jesus as worthy of dying for the nation. They're sent from the chief priests. He's already sentenced Jesus. Everything that happens from that point on is just a mockery. Just going through the motions. Caiaphas has already decided this guy is worthy of death. It's proper and appropriate. Let's kill this guy so that we can uh, keep our place with the Romans. Purely political move. So Jesus asked them again, says, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why did this happen? What's the significance of Jesus 
saying I am, identifying himself as I am. And then these are Jews and Gentiles, Romans as well as Jews. So at least the, the Sanhedrin or the chief priests or the, uh, the Pharisees or whoever's making up the, the Jewish part of this crowd, they know when he says I am, this is what they've tried to kill him for in the past. Remember? They asked about uh, Abraham. He said before Abraham was I am. And they took up stones to kill him. This is not the first time he's identified himself as the I am. It is, however, the first time he's identified himself as the I am and everybody falls down. Which you would think would have an impact upon them. You'd think that would make an impression. But it doesn't. Because they have a singleness of purpose. And that is to take him captive. To try to capture him. But who's in charge here? He's showing them full well. I'll go with you. It says that he was led to, to, to the high priest, not dragged, not driven, not pushed, not kicked. He was led. He went willingly, but he's just demonstrated to the whole group, if I want to, you're toast. They answered again, saying, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered and said, I, am, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Now, I want you to notice something, and this is real important because of John's perspective. John is portraying Jesus as the one that's in charge. He's portraying Jesus as the all-powerful one. He's portraying Jesus as the king that's offering himself as a sacrifice for, the, for mankind. Jesus, as the intended capture or intended uh, captive, issues a command. He said, I just told you that I am. If you're looking for me, let these go their way. That's a command, folks. He's commanding them what to do. Before they tie his hands, he ties theirs. Because you're going to find out that one of the questions uh, that Caiaphas asked is about, uh, or that the high priest asked, is about his disciples and his doctrine. They're very interested in these disciples. They would very much have liked to have taken the disciples with Jesus, but Jesus, as the good shepherd, protects the sheep. Without any concern for what's going to happen to him. He knows what's ahead for him. He says, I just told you that I am. If you're looking for me, let these go their way. And they do. Why in the world would they let the other guys go? Because Jesus commanded them to do it. That the saying might be fulfilled, verse 9, which he spake, of them which thou hast given me or gavest me, I have lost none. When did he say that? In his prayer in chapter 17 in verse 12. Jesus' prayer is coming to pass in the, with the power of God. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. We just saw in Luke chapter 22. Jesus says, Peter, what are you doing? Heals the guy's ear. I want you to notice what Peter is doing. Please keep this in mind. And, and John sees fit by the Holy Ghost to give us information about Peter, more so than any of the other disciples in this chapter or in the, the whole experience. You remember it's just been a few hours before that Jesus said, all men are going to be offended at me and will depart from me. And Peter stands up, well, stands up, speaks up, and says, Master, I'll follow you to the death. Jesus says, you'll deny me three times before morning. Well, now, I think it's important to recognize that if there's one thing that you would expect of Peter or suspect from Peter, the thing that's going to be last in your mind is cowardice. I mean, Peter is the rough and ready guy. He's always the one that jumps out front. He leads with his mouth. Not always to his benefit. He makes a lot of mistakes, but I mean, he's just that kind of guy. But Peter's going to turn into a coward. But at this point, he hasn't yet become the coward. He's trying to accomplish whatever he thinks is the will of God in the flesh. And Jesus, again, John doesn't give us the the... the Information about healing the servants here, it shows us that Jesus' focus is on one and only one thing, and that is doing the Father's will. Because he answers and says, put up your sword into your sheath. The cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? In other words, everything that Jesus is focused on from John's perspective, as inspired by the Holy Ghost, is returning to the Father, accomplishing the Father's plan, doing that which needs to be done. But he does it in power. Not as some kind of victim, not some, I mean, this idea of the lamb being led dumb to the slaughter, that's relative. Because Jesus has the power to change this anytime he wants to and chooses not to. Okay, let's start reading in verse 12 and we'll read down through verse, um, 
18. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That's John chapter 11, verse 49. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus unto the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without, or outside, then went out that other disciple which was known unto the high priest and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now let's look at this uh, a little bit. Here where it says the band led them bound. Band, verse 12, the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Uh, it is, um, uh, I think it's Luke's, uh, no, it's Matthew's account, I believe. Matthew chapter 26, where uh, Judas has, uh, has warned them. He's, uh, he's advised them that you're going to have to bind him tightly. Now, that's interesting to me. Why would Judas instruct the, the, uh, the, the chief priests that when you take him, you're going to have to tie him up? What's he thinking? He's seen Jesus do miraculous things. Can Jesus not break bonds, the, the bonds on his, on his hands? Why would they have to chain this guy? Why would they have to put leg irons on him or whatever, you know, the type of stuff they had to do? Uh, Judas strictly charged them that they should do that. But more than, more than anything else, it seems that it's a fulfillment of prophecy because in uh, Psalm 118, verse 27, it talks about the sacrifice being bound and tied to the horns of the altar. So it, it must be the, the Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament uh, uh, type of the sacrifice being led away f- to, uh, to offer uh, its life for the sins of the people. And it says, here's the thing that, uh, that's, uh, that's probably the biggest controversy about John's gospel. Of all the things that are written and all the things that are said, the next couple of verses are the big controversy about John as opposed to the other synoptic gospels, which are uh, similar in, in theme and purpose. It said that let him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest in the same year. Um, it really doesn't tell us much about being in front of Caiaphas. Matthew tells us about being in front of Caiaphas because Caiaphas was the high priest. Annas is uh, Caiaphas' father-in-law. And it tells us more about what happens with, John tells us more about what happens with Jesus before Annas. Now, why is that? Why wouldn't, did God make a mistake? Does he not know who's high priest? Because you've got Annas being talked about uh, or as doing the one examining Jesus to begin with, which is the high priest's job. And then you've got Caiaphas being spoken of as the high priest. In order to understand this, you're going to have to uh, turn back with me to a couple other scriptures. We're going to come back here, so hold your finger here. But turn back with me. Uh, We've already seen that uh, that Caiaphas is the one that's operating as the high priest in John chapter 11, where he says it's expedient for one man to die. Uh, Jesus to die for the sins of the, of the of the whole nation, so we don't lose our place with the Jews. But I want you to see a couple other scriptures. Turn with me to Luke chapter three. And then we'll also turn over to Acts chapter four. Luke chapter three, uh, I'll start in verse one. Verse two is what I really want you to see, though. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch, of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Traconus, I guess, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas, notice verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So it's talking about at the beginning of John's ministry, which preceded Jesus by at least, uh, probably about a year. We don't know exactly how much longer than that, but probably about a year before Jesus started his ministry, uh, maybe a year and a half or so. Uh, it tells us who was high priest in, in the, uh, that time, at that particular time. Notice it mentions both men. It mentions Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. Folks, that's impossible. You can't have two people as high priests. And this has baffled commentators and, and 
Bible scholars, they've argued about this over and over and over again. What does this mean? Some people look at this as being a discrepancy in the, uh, an error in the, in the, uh, the gospels or an error in the text and stuff like that. But there's only one explanation that we can give. And that is that the Romans were not willing to let the Jews pick their own high priests and serve in the manner which God had dictated for them. But the Romans being in charge of the Jews, and, and they had more trouble with the Jews and the religious Jews than anybody else when it came to uprisings and stuff like that. Those things always started through the temple. So it must be that the, that the, um, that the Romans are interjecting themselves in who's going to be high priest for the Jews. Did you notice that it said over in John chapter 18 before we, before we turned away, and it says the same thing over in John chapter 11, Caiaphas was the high priest that same year? Well, that, uh, that language means he was high priest for that year. Well, the Levitical law said high priest for high priest for life. You're not a high priest for one year. You're high priest for life. Now, turn with me over to Acts chapter 4. Let me show you something else about this along the same line. Because now this is just a couple of months later after Jesus' resurrection. You remember the story where uh, the man at the beautiful gate is healed in Acts chapter 3. Then it says Peter and John were called before the council. This is the same council that puts Jesus to death in uh, some of the next verses that we're going to see. But in Acts chapter 4, it says, uh, let's start in verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, they has to mean the four guys that are mentioned in the previous verse. I, I don't know if there's one spokesman or if they're all speaking up or whatever the case is, but they refers to the four guys meant, mentioned in verse 6. And they asked... By what power or by what name have you done this? Well, let me ask you a question. How is it that just a couple of months before, Caiaphas is mentioned as being the high priest in the same year, and now it says Annas is the high priest in Acts chapter 4 and verse 6? You can see why commentators have trouble with these verses. Well, there's only one explanation, and that is there was a high priest that was recognized by God as according to the way that God set things up, which was one man set in place for life. We know that man would have to have been Annas because he was the elder of the two. But the Romans apparently were not willing to allow somebody to be in a position of leadership in the temple for a lifetime appointment. So they would rotate things around or select somebody else. Apparently they're coming from the same family so that there's not an uprising I mean, if you choose, chose somebody that wasn't of the, the proper lineage, then the Jews would have a fit about that. So apparently they're going from the high priest's family, but they're picking and choosing, okay, you're high priest this year, you're high priest next year, somebody else is the high priest the next year for any number of reasons, perhaps. I mean, we'd have to speculate, but it would keep uh, any one person from consolidating power. It would keep any one person from being looked at in, a, in uh, what the Romans would consider to be an inappropriate manner. Uh, to be exalted and, and uh, to lead the people. Because if you've got the ear of the people and you've convinced them that you're hearing from God, then it's easier to talk them into rebelling against the uh, Caesar's government. So with that in mind, let's go back to Acts chapter... I'm uh, not Acts. Let's go back to John chapter 18. We can conclude a couple of things from this. Annas has to be the high priest that God would recognize as the religious leader of the people. Caiaphas, however, is the high priest that's set up by the Romans, who is kind of the political figure to represent the Jews to the Roman government. So the Bible tells us very little. John's account tells us very little about Caiaphas. He's kind of an afterthought. Annas is the guy because he would be the one that would be the, the high priest as far as the law of God was concerned, not the law of the Romans. So let's go back to verse 13. They bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now who's this other disciple? It'd be real easy to say that John's talking about himself again. The problem with that is, he, if he is talking about himself, then he's talking about himself in a different way than he talked about himself when he spoke in the third person before. 
when he was talking about himself at the Last Supper, he said the disciple that Jesus loved. Why does he not, if he's talking about himself, why does he not talk about the disciple that Jesus loved? That would be inconsistent with the Holy Ghost using him to speak of himself in a different way now than he did before. Not only that, but there's a couple of reasons why this is most probably not John. For example, John is from Galilee, just like Peter was, and he's from a poor family. They're from a fishing family. So it wouldn't make sense that he would be known of the high priest to begin with. It doesn't make sense that he would have any influence with the gatekeeper or the doorkeeper in in, uh, the high priest's house to be able to get Peter in the door. Thirdly, it doesn't make sense, since he's from Galilee, that he would not be suspected like Peter was standing by the fire when he was joined, had joined himself to the other people. That's the thing that caused them to say, weren't you with him? Because they recognized this is a farmer guy. This is a backwoods guy. This is not a city guy. He's not from here. Well, John would be recognized in the same way. Finally, the last thing is, in Acts chapter 4, when it talks about them standing before the high priest, the group that we just read about in just a few minutes before, it's obvious that they don't know either Peter or John. Well, if John is the one that's getting Peter in the door, he has to be known by the high priest. So how now, a couple of months later in Acts chapter 4, would he not be known? So this is most probably not John. Well, who is it? Well, I don't know. We can make a couple of guesses. There's no telling if we're right or not. But, for example, we can make some suggestions. Let's call them suggestions instead of guesses. could be Nicodemus. Nicodemus had come to Jesus before, and Jesus had told him about being born again. It could be Joseph of Arimathea. He was a man of influence, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus after he was dead. Remember? Well, the Bible tells us in John chapter 8 that many of the Jews believed on Jesus when they saw the miracles. It also tells us in John chapter 11 that many of the Jews believed on Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of those Jews that are spoken of are the chief priests and the rulers of the synagogues. So it could have been any number of people like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea or somebody that we've never even heard of before. And maybe that's why John doesn't name him because he's not anybody that would be familiar to us. I don't know. Maybe he's saying it for for the sake of the individual. Maybe that person's still alive. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he doesn't identify it, but most probably is not him. So it talks about another disciple that was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus unto the palace of the high priest, but Peter stood at the door. Now notice in verse 17, here's the little girl that's standing at the door. Remember, as I said before, Peter is just a couple of hours, maybe, before this point in time, declared to Jesus that I'll go with you to the death. He certainly exhibited his uh, willingness to fight by cutting off the ear of the high priest servant called Malchus. So you can't you can't really question the guy's courage. You can't really really question the guy's willingness to follow Jesus, right? But now, notice how Peter becomes a coward, not because he's faced down by soldiers. He wasn't a coward when he faced the soldiers. He becomes a coward when he's faced by a little girl. Notice it says, then, set, then uh, said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art now thou also one of this man's disciples? And he said, I am not. Now, folks, I would submit to you, and this is just a guess on my part, but I, it just human nature is, uh, is behind this guess. If Peter had been arrested with Jesus and was standing there in chains, Peter would be defiant. But he's not. Now, that brings up another point. At the end of chapter 17, when Jesus finishes praying, Jesus could very easily have told his disciples, now, you guys stay here. I'm going to go by myself and go pray. Why did he take them to the Garden of Gethsemane when it was only his command that caused them to not be taken captive too? Because he wanted to see, wanted them to see that he was ready to go to the cross. And he also wanted them to see, this is how you face persecution. Not in weakness, but in strength. Now what is Peter doing? Peter's afraid he's going to be found out by a little girl. If somebody had accused him very strongly and said, Oh, I was there. I saw you. Maybe he'd have taken a different attitude, but he didn't. Now notice what he does. It's interesting the Holy Ghost is showing us this. I don't believe it's to embarrass Peter. I believe it's for us to learn. Verse 18, and the servants and the officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Let me remind you back to verse, uh, 
5. Then answered Jesus, then they answered Jesus, the officers and, and so forth, answered Jesus, answered who they were looking for by saying Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Notice that phrase. Judas stood with these officers. Now over in verse 18, it says, Peter stood with the same servants and same officers that have taken Jesus captive. Now, there's something about this, folks, that you need to understand. When you stand with the wrong people, your testimony is weakened. What's Peter doing standing with the people that took Jesus? Oh, well, he's just warming himself by the fire. Really? Was being warm worth that? It was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now we're going to take a break in the, in Peter's story and start reading in verse 19 down through verse 24 where it tells us about Jesus before Annas. The high priest then asked Jesus of the disciples and of his doctrine. Now who is it calling the high priest? This is Annas talking to him, not Caiaphas. So again, you see that God recognizes one person to be high priest when the Romans recognize somebody else. The Romans and the Jews, I should say. Then the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogues and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which have heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound to, the high, to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then it picks up the story with Peter again. So let's back up and talk about this, this uh, section of Scripture. Notice it says in uh, verse 19, Then the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 25, where Paul was brought before uh, a court the same kind of court uh, that Jesus is standing before, the court of the Jews. Acts chapter 25, verse 16. Paul's talking to, uh, I think this is when he's talking to Agrippa and uh, Bernice and Festus. And notice Paul's telling his story. He's saying, uh, let's pick up in verse 15. He said, about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, it is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die. Now, please notice how Roman law and how the Jewish, uh, the Judea, Judaic system worked in that time. It says, about whom when I was, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 16. To whom I answered, it is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before he which is accused have their accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Now, Acts 25 verse 16 tells us this is how the Roman law worked. Notice how different it is for the trial that pertained to Jesus. This is not the, the operation of the Roman law. Notice he gets before the high priest and the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples. In other words, there was not a charge made. The high priest, Annas, did not stand here and say, Jesus, you stand charged of X, Y, or Z. And here are the witnesses that we have as proof that you did whatever they're accusing him of. And then Jesus would have an opportunity in a, in a regular court, in the way the law was supposed to work, Jesus would have an opportunity to answer his accusers face-to-face and explain himself if that was the case. That's not what's happening here. This is more like an inquisition where Annas is standing up and asking Jesus about two things. Notice what he asked him about. He asked him about his doctrine, and he asked him about his disciples. That's further evidence to me that they would have loved to have had the disciples in chains alongside with Jesus. But it, but for the command of Jesus to let them go, they would have. And Jesus, in response, knowing this is not the way that this law is supposed to work, neither the law of God or the law of the Jews nor the law of the Romans, Jesus answered them and said, I spoke openly to the world. Now, why is this? Why is he talking about it? It looks like Jesus is kind of getting off point. No, Jesus knows exactly what the point is. 
He knows that Annas has no opportunity to put him to death. It's against the Roman law for the Jews to put somebody to death without the Roman approval. That's why they wind up having to go to Pilate. If it weren't for that, they could have crucified Jesus on their own. But they will say to Jesus, or say to Pilate, excuse me, they will say to Pilate, we don't have the authority under law to put him to death. That's why we need your say-so. So Jesus recognizes that the only chance they have of putting him to death is to claim that he's caused some kind of insurrection against Rome. And so what does he say? He answers based on the underlying charge that they're going to make, which is insurrection or sedition. And he said, I spoke openly in the world. I ever taught in the synagogues. Now, there's, the word the is not in the Greek. It's literally saying I ever taught in synagogues and in the temple. In other words, he's not just talking about Jerusalem. I was in the synagogues everywhere I've been. I've taught in the synagogues and I've taught in the temple. Whether the Jews always resort. In other words, there's plenty of people that know about what I've taught and what I've said. And in secret have I said nothing. What has he done? He's proven by his words that I am not guilty of the insurrection you're going to charge me with. The insurrection against Rome. Trying to create a riot or or, uh, a revolt against Rome. And then he says in verse 21, why askest thou me? Now notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, go call the people I healed. Get the lame, get the lepers, get the blind that have been healed. Tell them, let them tell you what I did. He's not doing that. You know why? Because Annas has heard Jesus just like the rest of them. So he's saying, why are you asking me? Ask them which heard me, knowing that Annas is one of the ones that have heard him. Ask them what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. Then when he had said this, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. Now, the, the margin of my Bible, I've got a little number two by the, by the phrase with the palm of his hand. The margin of my Bible says, or with a rod. The Greek language does not support the, the phrase with the palm of the hand. It doesn't distinguish what he was hit with. But Micah chapter 5 and verse 1 says this. The last part of the verse says, They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. So most Bible scholars agree that since the Bible does not distinguish uh, what he was hit with, but that he was struck in the face, it was probably the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. So he was struck in the face with something, most probably a rod. And the guy said, the officer said, Answerest thou the high priest so? And Jesus answered him and said, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. If I've done the wrong things, show me. But if I have spoken well, if what I've said is true, then what are you hitting me for? He's showing right off the bat. And again, here's the dignity of the Son of God in his trial and in his uh, in the crucifixion. He never loses who he is. He never loses the opportunity to show to everybody involved, I know just exactly what's going on. And the underlying message to me is, and I could get out of this anytime I want to, but I choose to stay in your kangaroo court. Now, Annas, verse 24, now Annas had sent him. There's no had in the Greek in this verse. It says, now Annas sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. In other words, it's saying Annas realized, I do not want to debate with this guy anymore. This is only going to make me look bad. So what does he do? He sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is recognized by the Romans as the high priest. It calls, Annas call, is called the high priest in verse 19, Caiaphas is called the high priest in verse 24. You can see the the opportunity for confusion on the part of a lot of people. We'll start in verse 25 and read down through uh, where? Well, we'll read down through a little bit and we'll talk. Down through verse 27, I guess. It picks up the story of Peter again. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Remember, he's standing with the officers and the servants by the fire. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, and they said, Therefore unto him, Art not thou one of, also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. Here's the second time he denies. One of the servants of the high priest being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, here's one of Malchus's cousins or whoever, said, Did I not see thee in the garden with him? Then Peter denied again the third time, and immediately the cock crew. Now it says, and it picks up in verse 28 and says, they led, then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. Um, 
here's the part that, that John leaves out. I'm going to read over in uh, Matthew chapter 26. And I'm going to read, uh, I don't know, 10 verses or so to fill in the blanks. About what happened next. I'll start in verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Here's what's taking place in what should be the holiest court in the planet because it's operating according to the law of God. It's intended to operate according to the law of God. It says they sought witnesses false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. They've already determined, here's the outcome. Now we've just got to try to make this thing look good. So what are they doing? They're looking for witnesses. Contrary to both the law of God and the Roman law. But found none, verse 60. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? Now here's the part that that Matthew fills in that, that John leaves out. It just tells us that Caiaphas sent him directly to Pilate. But here's the thing that happened before Caiaphas that caused him to send him to Pilate. The high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses, uh, what is it which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered him and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now here's the high priest, recognized by the Romans, who is demanding by using the name of God that Jesus identify whether or not he is the Christ. Because as far as Christ is concerned, if he claims to be the Christ, that's it. Ball game's over. To which I wonder, what would it take for Caiaphas to be convinced that Jesus was the Christ? He's healed the sick. He's opened blind eyes. He's cleansed the lepers. What would it take? Well, the answer is simply this, folks. Caiaphas represents religion. Annas is the high priest, which represents the people of God, the religious system. But Caiaphas is man's um, outlook toward religion. He's just a political figure. And so there's nothing that's going to convince him. But once he uses the name of God, Jesus has to answer because he does have an office. He does have a position that God set up. And Jesus said, said unto him, verse 64, here's the only thing that we have record of in any of the Gospels that Jesus ever said to Caiaphas. Otherwise, he ignores the guy as worthless, irrelevant, which I'm sure was a big boost to his ego. Verse 64, Jesus said unto him, thou hast said, in other words, you say so. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven mentions two things. He said, you're going to see me two ways. He said, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of God. It's talking about Jesus resurrected in the church age. Secondly, he said, and you will see me coming from heaven with power to the earth to judge the earth. Then the high priest, verse 65, notice this. This is symbolic. Then the high priest rent his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, he is guilty of death. Now, folks, what's significant about this is when Caiaphas rends his garments, that's always this, uh, that always signifies that you're through with this garment. You never fix a rent garment when you rend it for a purpose, a religious purpose like that. So what Caiaphas is doing is he takes the high priestly robes and rips them down the middle. And when he rips them down the middle, he's, eventually, he's effectively saying, we don't need these things anymore. And from that time forward, there was no high priesthood recognized by God among the Jewish people. It's just a matter of a few years to 70 A.D., what, 35, 37 years later, that the Jews destroy the temple and there is no longer the temple, no evidence of the priesthood, the high priestly family or anything else. Then verse 28, let's go back up to verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. So you can see that Matthew fills in the blanks for us. But from John's perspective, the high priest's work was Annas, the inquiry by Annas, not by Caiaphas. So they led him into the hall of judgment, or some translations say Pilate's uh, palace. 
and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, this is the most hilarious verse in the Scripture. They're about to commit the greatest injustice in the history of mankind, and they're worried about being defiled. Can't go in Pilate's judgment hall, because that'll make us unclean. We're, our purpose for being here is to get an innocent man condemned to death. But going inside the house, that's a no-no. They themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. In other words, there wasn't time to cleanse themselves so that they could partake of the Passover if they went in and, and uh, into what they considered to be an unclean place. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? Now, here's the thing you need to realize. You remember the band of officers, the servants and officers that came out against Jesus, maybe the 400, 500 people? They couldn't have got those Roman soldiers without Pilate's consent. Pilate already knew what was going on. Pilate knew who Jesus was. He may not have known Jesus was the one they were after. He may or may not have known that. But he knows that they're coming to him for one purpose, and that is to bring before him whoever it was they asked for the band of soldiers to to take the previous night. So he simply asked them, what accusation bring you against this man? He doesn't come out and say, what are you guys doing here? He knows what they're doing there. So he says, what accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said unto him, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Now remember the, the tenets of Roman law? The tenets of Roman law is there's got to be an accusation. There has to be witnesses. And the third thing, the first is it has to be an accusation or it has to be a charge. The second is you have to have witnesses. The third is that you can face your witnesses in, uh, in this court to answer for yourself. They answer. Notice what they say. Bless their hearts. They're all heard about this. They answer and say, if he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't be here. So what accusation do you have against this guy? He's a bad guy. And if he, had, if he wasn't, we wouldn't even be bothering you. They're supposed to just take, he's supposed to just take their word for it. Now, Luke's account says that they cried out and said that he was uh, commanding people not to pay tribute to Caesar and he was, uh, you know, trying to start a revolt and that kind of stuff. And, and that may be their accusation later on that John just doesn't tell us about. Then Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Now the cards are on the table. That's why we're here. That's the only reason we're involving you. We need to put you to put your stamp of approval on putting him to death. We want this guy executed. Pilate knows who he is. He knows about the miracles. He knows about the stir that's created among the Jews for the last three years over this guy. He knows everything that's going on. He's had, he's had reports back and forth from his soldiers and other people. This is, uh, is uh, do or die time for him. Now, think about this. They're, according to Luke, they said his crime is that he's telling people to revolt against Caesar. So that would mean, as far as Pilate's concerned, Jesus is being accused of being the enemy of Rome. What greater enemy of Rome is there than the Jews that are accusing him? And Pilate's smart enough to know if that's the problem, these guys are not going to be the ones bringing him before me. He is going to have accusations, but they're going to be accusations from Romans, not from Jews. Because the Jews are all for somebody stirring us up so that we can revolt against Rome and rebel against Rome and try to get our our freedom back. Pilate's smart enough to know what's really going on here. He knows that they're envious of Jesus, and that's the reason they want him killed. Verse 32, that the saying, uh, verse 31, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again. He goes back inside and calls Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Where did he get that? They didn't say anything about him being a king. If this is the only information Pilate has, why is it that he's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? He knows ahead of time what the story is. He knows what problem the Jews are having with Jesus because the people have already tried forcibly to take him as king. And Jesus passed through the midst of them and hid himself from them. He knows exactly what's going on. So he wants to find out now, face to face, is Jesus the cause of the problem? So he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him and said, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? What kind of answer is that? What do you want to know for? 
Notice Pilate's answer. Pilate answers in verse 35 and he says, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest has delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Now, there's something real interesting about this because if he's not a Jew, he didn't deserve to know if Jesus is the king of the Jews. Because Jesus was sent to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. Pilate is, a, is the representative of the Gentiles. So if he's not a Jew, he's not worth telling whether or not I am the Christ, I am the king of the Jews. So Pilate turns this around and Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. It's your own people that have brought you before me and are making an accusation. What have you done? Here's Jesus' answer. His answer is, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Now, here's what that, uh, here's what that statement means. That statement means I'm not guilty of insurrection. Because king or not, whatever you think about me being a king, my kingdom is not of this world, so my people aren't going to fight. So he's answered the accusation of the Jews, the underlying accusation of the Jews. He's saying, I'm not guilty of insurrection. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus, if Jesus is going to be condemned to death, he's got to be condemned to death for the right thing, not the wrong thing. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou then a king? Jesus answered and said, You say that I'm a king. To this end I was born. And came into this world. And for this cause came I into this world. Now notice he says two things. He says for this purpose or for the, to this end I was born and for this cause I came. Where would you come from? He's telling Pilate I came from heaven. And for this cause came I into this world. That I should bear witness unto the truth. And everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. He's saying when Pilate asked him are you a king? Are you then a king? He says my kingdom's not of this world. Here's my purpose in life. Here's what I'm guilty of. I'm guilty of speaking the truth. But only those that are of the truth can hear my voice. Pilate then said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Now it's interesting to notice that Pilate speaks of truth in a general sense. Jesus spoke of truth in a specific sense. Verse 37, Jesus said, I came into the world for this cause to bear witness of the truth. Pilate says, What is truth? Pilate takes the world's position of, well, all things are relative, you know. What may be true for you is not necessarily true for me. He says, what is truth? But now Pilate shows what a, what a um, let's use the word coward. He shows what a coward he is. Because he says, goes out to the Jews and says unto them, I find in him no fault at all. What he does not say is, I just set him free. Because he's innocent. Obviously, he's innocent. So I've turned him loose. That's not what he does. He says, I find no fault in him. But you have a custom, verse 39, that one that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? It's almost like he goes out with a deal. He says, I don't find any fault with him. But I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll release him to you according to your custom at the Passover where one prisoner goes free. I'll release him to you. How about that? Or how about if I will release him to you, then we'll say that he's whatever. Maybe I'll flog him. Maybe I'll scourge him. Maybe I'll do whatever. We'll make you happy in this thing, but let's just leave him alone. What's interesting about this to me is that even the Romans recognized the custom of deliverance related to the Passover. Turning loose a prisoner? Seriously? Why would the Romans care one bit about the Jews' custom of deliverance at Passover. It's made an impact on their nation, hasn't it? They recognize there's something about this ritual, maybe even going back to the to the, the, the original Passover in Egypt. So he tries to, to appease them by saying, I tell you what, we'll let Jesus fulfill that part of your custom. And they say, nope. They cried or shouted, verse 40, all again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. The word robber means bandit, one who uses force. Luke says that he was in prison because he was guilty of sedition and murder. So what they're saying is, no, we want the robber and the murderer instead of Jesus. You know what the name Barabbas means? It means son of the father. He's saying we want the, they're saying, 
Israel is crying out, the representatives of Israel are crying out saying, no, we want the son of the father that's a thief and a murderer. The one that steals, the one that kills, the one that destroys. We don't want the son of the father God. Now, what is there to learn from this? Well, there's a lot of interesting things in here to me, and I, I hope you find it as interesting as I do. But, uh, but the final thing that I want you to see is that God left nobody in this, in this whole situation with an excuse. The whole, the whole story of chapter 18 is everybody is without excuse. The Roman soldiers, the Jews and the Gentiles that came before the Jews and the Romans that came to the Garden of Gethsemane fell backwards when Jesus declared, I am. He uses the very language that God used in originally identifying himself to mankind through Moses. He says, I am that I am sent me. When Moses said, who am I going to tell Pharaoh sent me? He said, I am that I am sent me. Jesus says, I am, and the power of God is displayed in such a measure that they all fall backwards. They're without excuse. Pilate's without excuse because his wife, uh, is it Matthew that tells us about this? Is it either Matthew or Luke? I'm not sure. Pilate's wife tells him before Jesus ever gets there, I had a dream about this guy. He's an innocent guy. You don't want anything to do with him. Leave him alone. But Pilate is such a coward that he's willing to satisfy the Jews and, and try to keep himself in good favor with Caesar and the powers that be rather than doing what he knows is the right thing to do. He's without excuse. What about the Jews? Nobody saw the miracles and the power of God like the Jews, specifically those Jews in Jerusalem because of the works that Jesus did in the temple, plus the things that Jesus did just a few miles outside in Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem when he raised Lazarus from the dead. There's nobody in this thing that has an excuse, and everybody is still determined that this man has to die. And for every bit of it, every person involved had a political purpose in Jesus dying. Had nothing to do with religion, had nothing to do with the plan of God, had nothing to do with accomplishing God's will. It had solely to do with politics. Folks, politics is the kingdom that the devil operates through. And it is willing to do away with anything and everything that is of God to have its way. It's the way it was then. It's the way it is now. Wouldn't it be nice to think that you had a high priest that was really interested in the things of God? That's like thinking you've got a politician now that cares more about the people that he's elected by than, the, than himself. They sometimes exist, but boy, they're so rare that you don't even know what to call them. This is a very real system of this world, folks, that's being governed by the enemy. And it's willing to destroy the things of God to have its way. There is no sign. There is no miracle. There is no thing that could have been done that would have convinced any of these people to turn around. The only people that ever say anything, the only thing that ever happens in the rest of this story concerning the death of Jesus is after Jesus dies on the cross, the Roman soldiers that were there when these things happened said, surely this was the Son of God. Well, that's a little late to find out, isn't it? Had they not been around to hear that at least a number of people, maybe, maybe the majority of people, a lot of people at least, were calling Jesus the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah is here, why didn't they believe then? wonder what it's going to be like when so many people come to the realization that Jesus really is the Son of God too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to face the cross. Father, we thank you that even though the scriptures show us the immense suffering that your Son endured, John shows us by the Holy Ghost the dignity and the power and the glory of God that was manifested not in his sufferings but in his willingness to fulfill your plan and your purpose in life. He accepted those sufferings as a part of the package. Father, let us be strengthened with might in the same way that we serve you and fulfill your plan for our lives no matter what it costs, no matter who stands against us, no matter what opposition rises up, whether it's popular or whether it's hated, whether we are popular or whether we are hated. 
that the thing that's first and foremost on our mind would be the same dignity and power that the Son of God manifested in fulfilling your plan for our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I don't know about you, but John's account makes me want to do things for God. Doesn't matter who's against me. If Jesus could do it, some of the other, look at the suffering at the Garden of Gethsemane from the other gospel accounts. I mean, that just touches my heart and breaks my heart. But I read John's account and it's kind of like, yeah, let's go get it done. Well, they're going to be against you. Yeah, okay, let's still get it done. Yeah, but you're going to suffer in the process. That's all right, let's get it done. I think that's the perspective that the Holy Ghost is trying to get John to reveal to us. Because it's all about the dignity and the power of the Son of God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.